Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Good morning. Welcome. It is, uh, it's a delight to see all the wonderful time of fellowship and passing of the peace. Anybody grew up in churches that pass the peace every week? Like you heard that language? Yes? These are all the liturgical mainliners in the room that are recovering from their experiences. No, I'm just kidding. Um, passing of the peace is a, is a tradition that goes back centuries in, into the church. Um, it's good to see all of you this morning. Again, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Um, I just became a father about eight months ago, and it is a life-changing experience, to say the least. I think all the dads of newborns can speak to that. There's something that happens you, when you hear that breath the very first time, or you hear that cry the very first time. Something shifts inside of you. You're like, this is real. This is not just ethereal. You know, this is not just a little picture that you get when you go get an ultrasound. Like, this is real life, and uh, it's game-changing for sure. So, happy Father's Day. I'm certainly grateful for my dad. Um, my dad's got a wonderful mustache. I'm grateful for that, that he could pass it on to me. So I'm very grateful that I could, you know, carry on the mustache legacy. My dad's a pastor, if you can only imagine what he looks like. Um, he's also been a wonderful I like to show me what it looks like to make intentional space and time to be with Jesus, as well as what it means to love his wife, to care for his kids, uh, and to throw a curveball as well. And that really matters a ton in the grand scheme of things, if we're being honest. Um, I do have a good news for all of you today. I have no corny dad jokes, none, like zero corny dad jokes today. So um, be grateful. But uh, I am aware also that this time of year, all of us are really seeking the Lord in, in prayer because everyone is praying that their air conditioning can keep up with the temperatures outside. So this morning, I'm grateful that the AC is pumping in this space. Thank you, Jesus, because it has been like desert hot outside. Has it not recently? Seriously, it's been so warm. Um, on top of Father's Day, we are also across the nation celebrating Juneteenth today and celebrating the emancipation of black slaves in 1865 in, in Texas and recognizing that that moment was looking back essentially at potentially 300-ish years of slavery for the black individual in our nation. And I also recognize it's easy for us to go that, oh yeah, Juneteenth, it's Emancipation Day, yes. But I also need for us to be aware there is a lot of work still to be done. A lot of work still to be done in terms of bringing a sense of dignity, value, and worth to every single person, and especially people of color who've experienced great oppression, pain, and suffering in our nation, our entire economy, friends, built on the backs of black slaves. We need to be aware of our story. We need to be aware of our history. And we need to be able to repent as a people and move forward on the basis of the reality and the theological an eschatological vision that every human being is made in the image of God and deserves value, dignity, and worth. And there is no naturalistic or scientific or atheistic worldview that can affirm that. Only the Judeo-Christian vision for humanity. 
So I just want to be able to proclaim that today in terms of Juneteenth and recognizing it as well. So happy Father's Day, happy Juneteenth, and we're jumping into Romans today. Woo! So I've been doing some stretching all morning, preparing for our time of jumping into this wonderful letter. We do begin our, our summer teaching series all summer long. And I do hope that you have a journal or something to write with because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I hope that you can keep up. I am going to challenge, hopefully, your intellectual capacity. I think all of you are bright, you're smart, you're thoughtful, and I think you will be able to keep up. But we are embarking on what might feel like a treacherous journey into the depths and great mystery that is Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, Romans for me, is a bit like going into Ikea for the very first time. Do you know that feeling, going to Ikea for the first time? And you're kind of like, what is this? Is it a daycare facility? Is it a big box retailer with cheaply made modern furniture? Or is it a cafeteria? Nobody knows. What Ikea really is, it's overwhelming. It's an all-day-long experience. And the fact that you have to walk on the road that has arrows drives me and my, like, uh, ADD like crazy, okay? Because you get in and you're like, I got to finish. Like, I got to finish the whole thing. Going into Romans is a bit like that. It's a little overwhelming. It's beautiful. But you're also kind of like, what is this? So kind of keep that in mind as a framework for moving into this teaching series. And for some of you, the very mention of Romans sends your brain into a level 10 headache. For others of you, it terrifies you, but also seems theologically exhilarating. And then the rest of you are like, what's, what's the big deal with Romans? I don't, I don't understand. But as we dive in today, I, I feel the need to lay some pastoral groundwork. Because keep in mind, my vocation, my calling is to pastor, to guide, to shepherd, and to move our community into Christoformity or into formation of Jesus, into the way of Jesus. So I want to lay some pastoral groundwork for all of you to give you a little bit of um, kind of a backwards look into where I'm coming from. Romans often gets linked with a theological system and framework known as Calvinism. Yes, I just said it. As well as a soteriological system or a salvific system laid out in the acronym T-U-L-I-P, which spells TULIP. Again, some of you are hearing this and you already have this tingly in your spine happening right now. For many in this space, that system, the TULIP system, and even the Calvinistic system for you is linked to a broader community, often referred to as Reformed, capital R Reformed, or Neo-Reformed, or for you, maybe even Baptist, capital B Baptist. In fact, some of us, our only association with Romans is actually with a diagram that can be drawn out on a napkin and can be used to lead someone in a sinner's prayer so that by profession of faith, they might, or you might, go to heaven and not hell when you die. Amen. <laughs> This is often referred to as the Romans road or the bridge gospel. How many of you have seen this drawn out on a napkin for you before? Yes, all the traumatic people in the room, as well as the potentially saved people in the room. I don't know. Now my points 
of clarification for our time together this morning. I am not a Calvinist in my soteriology. I am not reformed in the modern sense of the word. But to clarify, all of us in this room are reformed in that we aren't Catholic, okay? We are all reformed in that we aren't Catholic. And I have a deep uh, heart and a deep love for the history of Catholicism, but because we aren't practicing Catholics, we are all reformed. I'm also not a Baptist, but do believe baptism is the entry point of discipleship to Jesus and life in the family of God. So I want to bring those points of clarification for all of you. And finally, if the Romans wrote diagram was your moment of new life, great. Praise God. Welcome to the family. Thank you, Jesus. However, I do find it to be more individualistic and even Gnostic than what Paul is communicating in his letter, as well as incomplete within the greater context of Romans. And so here's my final pastoral thought before we really dive in. I am a millennial pastor, let alone Christian, which is a miracle. Because a lot of us know other millennial friends or Gen Z friends who have grown up in the South. They've grown up in these spaces in theological circles. They go off to college and they go through some sort of individual deconstruction of the entire faith. They recognize that maybe there's a leak in the ceiling. But what happens? Instead of addressing the leak, the entire house gets torn down. And that's called reductionism. That's like saying just because a toy can't fit in the toy box means it's not a toy. That's oversimplification, that's reductionist, and it's intellectually inconsistent and congruent. And a lot of us have come from those spaces before. And I get there's pain, I get there's hurt. But here's my encouragement for all of us, especially those of us who are walking with friends who have explicitly turned our back on certain communities for various reasons. First, don't assume that you are a theologian because you listen to some podcast. Okay? Some of you are like inching closer in your seat right now. You're a little nervous. Here's the second thing. Don't assume that you won't become like the person that hurt you. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, atheist philosopher, well-known, early 20th century, makes this key statement I think is fantastic. So I'm quoting Nietzsche in our gathering today. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. And I see it all the time in our community, in our generation. That in our attempt to re reject and redirect and reform, we actually end up becoming the very people, becoming like the very people we're trying to reject. So keep these things in mind. Don't assume you're a theologian because you listen to some podcasts. And don't assume you won't become like the person that hurt you. Because here's the deal, friends. We are part of a 2,000-plus-year-old community of faith. It's transcultural. It's across all socioeconomic spectrums. And the entirety of the scriptures are written by a brown-skinned people who are experiencing oppression. And I do not want us to take the scriptures lightly. Because when we do, we look like white ethnocentrists. So let's just keep that in mind as we dive in today. Is that okay? All right, cool. Sounds great. Some of you are like, oh, man, this is going to be a long summer. Jeez. All right. 
Here's some socio-historical background for our letter to the Romans. It's important that we have context. Every time we read the scriptures, we need to have context. Who is the writer and who is the writer writing to and what's going on in that space and in that time? Rome, anybody been to Italy before? Anybody been to Rome? Anybody traveled across the world? Awesome, yes, great. So Rome, Italy was the capital city and cultural epicenter of the largest empire in the history of the world at the time in the first century. The Roman Empire lasted close to 1,000 years before falling in 476 AD. And the Roman Empire was accelerated under a famous Roman military leader that many of us know by the name of Julius Caesar. Now, when I think of this, I just think of Little Caesar's Pizza. I'll be honest with you. The little guy, like that's an image representing Julius Caesar. So this empire, which $5 pizza, we always clown Little Caesars for no apparent reason. It's $5, okay? Like, let's get over ourselves. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, the, <laughs> the empire within the first century spanned across 90 million people, 90 million people around the Mediterranean, roughly 25% of the world's entire population at the time. Rome was entirely pagan. It was polytheistic. In fact, Jupiter was the king of Roman gods, and it was a patriarchal society, and it was socially constructed for male elites walking on the backs of women and lower servants. A high percentage of the Roman Empire were bond servants or slaves, or the Greek word is doulas, about 60% roughly were considered bond servants in the first century, situated in this caste system, so to speak, with male elites at the top. And Paul is writing this letter, most scholars believe around 57 AD, which would have been 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus and just three years into the reign of a new Roman Caesar by the name of Nero. We aren't sure when Christianity made its way into Rome, but some assume that there were Jewish proselytes or Jewish converts and other Jews from Rome that took the gospel back to Rome after Pentecost in Jerusalem a couple decades prior which should tell us something, all of us, that the spreading of the message of Jesus is on the backs of ordinary, average, on fire, and resilient servant people, not celebrities or influential leaders. The entire gospel was taken back to Rome by people we don't even know their name. The gospel spreads in the darkest places of the world by no name, ordinary, average people just like us. Not by influential TikTok leaders, Instagrammers. It's by average people who are on fire because they've had an encounter with the true God who has made them new and set them free. And they're like, I've got to tell somebody about this. Paul is writing in this letter to a diverse group of Christians across ethnic, cultural, and even socioeconomic lines. In the late 40s AD, Emperor Claudius expelled, this is important, expelled all Jews out of the urban core of Rome. And when Nero comes to reign after his death in 54 AD, a few years later, Jewish Christians re-enter the mix, but now it seems that there is a greater chasm between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians since the majority is now Gentile. The majority of Christians in Rome, when the letter is being written, is now Gentile. So it's created an ethnic tension. 
It's created a cultural tension. And Paul is addressing a church that's on the verge of fracturing across ethnic lines here in Rome. Now, most of us get so bogged down by Romans 1 through 8 that we don't read Romans 9 through 16. But it is in the back half of the letter, specifically Romans 12 through 16, that we see the actual audience and social context that Paul is speaking into. But we get so drained by the first eight chapters, we don't even see the context in which Paul is speaking into. There's a great book by a New Testament scholar by the name of Scott McKnight called Reading Romans Backwards. And he helps you look at the context socially in the audience first and then moving into the first half of Romans to get a better understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate. Now, this is being written to at least one house church, and we can assume a few others, but probably to no more than 100 Christians total, okay? And these house churches are meeting in the inner city of Rome. These are urbanites living in the inner city of Rome. Think about City View Apartments downtown Greensboro. I lived there for 11 months. I swear to you, every person in their 20s has lived at City View at some point if they live in Greensboro. I don't know what it is, but everyone traces their history back to City View. Morgan's lived there for a decade. It's a record. (laughs) And these house churches were meeting in little small loft-style apartments called insules in the inner city of Rome. And some think the... Trestevere neighborhood, which I pronounced that totally wrong, the Trestevere neighborhood in inner city of Rome. And I actually have some pictures for you guys to kind of get an understanding of what it looked like in this space. So here's the neighborhood now where most scholars think Christianity took root in the first century within Rome. And then we also have a picture of what these little insulas looked like or these little apartments in the first century. So if we can go to that slide, that'd be awesome. There it is, right there. So this was an ancient Roman apartment building, and this would have been the location of house churches in the city. So just imagine that there's only around 100 Christians in a city of half a million seeking to be resilient followers of Jesus, and they're experiencing internal tension and fracture. This is the audience in which Paul is speaking to. Imagine for us just for a moment, if it was just our community, the only Christians in all of Greensboro. This gives us a glimpse and a picture of who Paul is speaking to. All the while, these individuals are trying to be faithful to following Jesus amidst the largest and most pagan city of the ancient world. Clearly, we aren't just dealing with the Romans road diagram. We're dealing with a lot more. And there's three things I want us to note as we read Romans throughout the summer together. And I would encourage you in your own devotional time, in your own time with Jesus, to make it a practice to read Romans as we dialogue and we teach through the teaching series all summer long. But here's three things we need to note as we journey together. The first thing is that Paul is writing to a people in a place at a time in history. Paul is writing to a people in a place at a time in history. The second thing is that Romans is scripture, meaning though it wasn't written to us, it was also written for us. Romans was not written to us. It was written to a group of folks in house churches in Rome, but because it is scripture, it was written for us and for the sake of transforming us and changing us. 
And the third thing, and we have to realize this, anytime we dive into Paul, who for some reason becomes a polarizing figure in a lot of theological circles and in the local church, Paul is writing as a person transformed by Jesus. Always remember who Paul was before Jesus. A murderer, a terrorist, killing and annihilating Christians across the Middle East. But he has been transformed, and he is writing as a transformed person. So keep these three things in mind. Now we need to look at the literary layout and the aim of this letter. Again, we're just kind of laying some groundwork for all of us today. There are four units of thought in Romans. This will kind of help us navigate the big box retailer that is Ikea. All right? There's four areas in this letter, four units of thought. Chapters 1 through 4 kind of look at Jesus as the rescuer. Chapters 5 through 8, we'll see Jesus as a representative. Chapters 9 through 11, we'll see Jesus as the reconciler. And chapters 12 through 16, we'll see Jesus as the restorer. So we have four units of thought, 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 16, and really broken down into two main sections, 1 through 8 and 12, or excuse me, 9 through 16. So that kind of at least gives us a little breathing room as we dive into this very dense piece of work. And though this letter is, is rich with complex theology, to call it a systematic theology is narrow in its scope. It also covers an eclectic mix of a more in-depth summary of Paul's writing. You see a lot of Paul's writing come in Romans, specifically some uh, translations um, of Galatians as well as Corinthians. You're seeing a greater um, coverage of this teaching that he also sends to the church in Galatia as well in Corinth. He also lays out a moral or ethical framework in how to live by way of the Spirit as an implication of the gospel. So there are some moral ethical elements to Romans. And it also attempts to unify an otherwise divided group of diverse Christians. So keep all these things in mind. Some even think that Romans is a fundraiser, or he's trying to raise some funds to take a mission trip to Spain and take the gospel to Spain. And so he's kind of covering a lot of ground. So when anyone tries to narrow the scope of Romans, then they are actually limiting and not looking at holistically all that is being covered in Romans. No one can say the one uh, impetus of Romans is this. It's hard to do that because he's covering a lot of ground. Paul isn't just downloading esoteric theology for St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and Karl Barth to synthesize and package for us to debate. He's not doing this so that John Piper and N.T. Wright can go back and forth in books very passive-aggressively. It's not why he's doing this. He is shepherding a people more deeply into a life of spirit-filled Christoformity, making a case for how to live in light of a resurrected king. New Testament scholar Dr. Michael Gorman says Paul's theology always has a pastoral function. We forget that Paul is pastoring these communities. He has a formational or a transformational agenda. And this is my and our ultimate goal in preaching and teaching the scriptures and even in this study this summer. Encountering the king of the cosmos just as Paul did himself. 
That is always my aim. That's always my desire that you encounter the king of the cosmos just as Paul did himself on the road to Damascus. I don't want to just download new information. I don't want us to have a, a radical sense of theological discussion and debate. I want all of us to encounter the living king of the cosmos. But underneath it all in this letter is one cosmic foundation, and it is this, the gospel. The gospel is undergirding this entire letter. And the word gospel in the Greek is euangelion. You've heard us talk about this often. And it occurs primarily in the Romans letter in chapters 1 and 2 and 15 and 16. Meaning that the gospel bookends the entire letter. He begins and he ends with the gospel. Paul never loses sight of the gospel. Especially in light of the grand narrative made up in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Paul also has 50 scriptural references through the letter and allusions to others. Meaning, he's pulling from the entirety of the library of the scriptures in this letter. Uh, a couple years ago, we did a teaching series on the gospel and the story of God. Which you can actually go back and listen to because I think it's very helpful. But what I want to do to you do with you real quick, is I want you to talk to the person beside you for about 30 seconds to a minute, and I want you to tell them what the gospel is. So here's my question for all of you to discuss briefly. What is the gospel? Go. All right. Very good. I am sure that there are many answers to such question in this room. And I bet if I sat down with you and got to know you and how you articulated the gospel, I could learn about your church experience. I could, I could tell what camp you came from. I could tell if you grew up in like a Lutheran environment, if you grew up in maybe Presbyterian environment, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, or if you grew up in some kind of like Anabaptistic kind of space. I don't know. I would learn a lot about you by this question. But here's the deal. I bet a lot of you are like, honestly, I don't know. I do not know what the gospel is. But Romans has brought us back to it. And we have to be able to articulate with clarity, what the gospel is. And a misunderstood gospel is detrimental to our discipleship to Jesus and our witness in the world. McKnight says that the gospel that we preach impacts the churches that we create and plant. We have to have gospel clarity. So, Romans chapter 1. We're finally getting into the scriptures. Verses 1 through 4. Let's read this together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, it could also be King Jesus, 
called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There's that word. The gospel he promised before his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You guys are getting good at that. I'm impressed. It's it's wonderful. So the question, what is the gospel? I want to help you understand quickly what it is not. The gospel is not the plan of salvation or the Romans road. The gospel is not something that can happen to us. The gospel is not some version of atonement theory. It is not some idea among other ideas. It is not a product that Christians advertise or a style of music that we listen to. The gospel, friends, in its most simplest form, based on the scriptures, is this. Jesus is Lord. This is the most important statement that we can cling to and lean into as the people of God. Jesus is Lord, or better yet, Jesus is King. The gospel is not a system, but a story. And I recognize, again, even by me asking the question, what is the gospel? Some of you begin rehearsing what you've been taught, what you've learned, and that's okay. But I want to bring some clarity today. And we can wrestle together. You can disagree. That's fine. But the gospel, based on the scriptures, is not a system, but a story. Dr. Michael Byrd, another New Testament scholar, says, To tell the gospel of God is to tell the story of Jesus. We just read, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which means the gospel requires the entirety of the Scriptures to understand, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life. So what does this mean? That the gospel is about the person of Jesus. It's regarding his son and his earthly life. He was a descendant of David, meaning that he is Israel's Messiah, but he's also the son of God, meaning that he is the king of all the cosmos, of all nations, of all people. It's regarding his son. The gospel is the story of Jesus as Lord. Dr. N.T. Wright says the good news that Jesus himself announced, like the good news that his first followers announced about him, was not a piece of advice, however good. It was about something that had happened, about something that would happen as a result, and about the new moment between those two, the moment in which people were in fact living, whether they realized it or not. I grew up in spaces often where I would, I would hear this phrase, maybe you've heard it before, that the gospel is Jesus in my place. Anybody heard that before? Jesus in my place. Is that true? Yes. Is that the fullness of the gospel? No. It's an implication of the gospel, and we'll come to that in just a moment. When we think about the gospel and even salvation, your salvation, my salvation, and our restoration 
is a consequential result of believing the gospel. You tracking with me? The gospel is not about your salvation so that you can go to heaven when you die and not go to hell. Salvation and restoration is a consequential result of believing this reality. Of believing the gospel. Now recently I heard some news that Culver's was coming to Kernersville. And I started speaking in tongues, shouting out to Jesus, thank you God, because I love Culver's. Anybody Culver's before and tasted the glory? Anybody been to Freddy's? Oh, listen. Listen, you are blind to the truth. Culver's is like Freddy's on another level. And I heard about this. I heard Culver's is coming to Kernsville. I'm like, finally. That is gospel. Whether I enjoy it or not. The reality that Culver's is coming to Kernersville is gospel or news, whether, I part, whether if I partake in it or not. The gospel is not, I got to enjoy Culver's. The gospel is it's here. The gospel of Jesus is that he is here. His kingdom has been inaugurated. It's a reality. It is not an advertisement. It is not a product we position. It is not something we sell. It is reality. It is truth. Now later... Paul will, which if you haven't been to Culver's, you need to go. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Later, Paul will proclaim in Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, we see the result of declaring the gospel. Jesus is Lord. If you believe in that, you will be saved. You will be restored. You will be set free. And so now whenever someone says gospel-centered, I've had people ask me before, are you a gospel-centered church? And I always have to ask, what do you mean by that? Oh, you mean like substitutionary atonement theory? We can talk about it, absolutely. But I think that the gospel is Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's a substitute, but he's also the victorious one. And he's a second Adam. He is the one who is representative of us. So we can get into atonement theory debates. That's fine. No big deal. But the gospel is not atonement theory. The gospel is that Jesus is king. So whenever you talk to someone and they say gospel-centered, we aren't talking about Christ as just the propitiation for our sin. We are talking about the reality of his redemptive rule and reign across time, place, space, culture, ideology, political party, and the like. So from this point forward in the letter, Paul builds his entire letter off of this reality and this story and the implications, therefore, ones that have not just spiritual implications, but also social and political implications, not partisan, but political, meaning how we function in society as citizens. Remember that Paul said in Romans 1.16, thank you to Lecrae and Andy Minnie and all those guys, that I am unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God that saves, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Meaning that some were ashamed of this gospel because they would, have, they would have been great social implications to ascribe and to submit to such reality. The Roman Caesar also happened to be called son of God in the first century. His birthday was hailed as euangelion or good news. 
And he claimed lordship from the largest empire the world had ever seen. An empire that was said to be the instrument of the gods to bring peace and justice to the world and by whatever means necessary, even if it meant oppressing large groups of people. Does that not sound familiar? Does that not sound familiar? This is an important statement for all of us this morning. To say Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. To say Jesus is king means Caesar is not. To say Jesus is Lord means no president in the history of the United States is Lord. It means you're not Lord. I'm not Lord. Famous people, Michael Jordan, Billie Eilish, they're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the king of the cosmos. He is king and he is Lord. Caesar is not. And that has deep social and political implications for the small group of Christians in the largest and most influential cultural epicenter of the known world at the time. Then in verse 17, Paul says, For in the gospel, the righteousness, or the Greek words diakosune, of God is revealed. And this is part of Paul's thesis statement. And there's a lot of debate in terms of diakosune and what he is meaning by the, the gospel being the righteousness of God revealed. Is this about uh, a a righteousness that's imputed to individuals, or is it about covenant faithfulness? We aren't quite sure, but what we do know is that through God's righteousness and through the people of God having faith in Jesus, there is a covenantal faithfulness on God's behalf that through this new people, all things will be made right and all things will be restored. Pastor Rich Velotis who's a pastor in Queens, New York, says that when the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife or to a glorious but strictly individual personal decision of faith, it's not what Jesus described as the good news about his kingdom come. And, predictab and predictably, there's no real urgency to see our lives oriented toward a more loving and just or right way of being in the world. At the core of the gospel, then, is the making right of all things through Jesus. Anytime we use the word just or justice, it assumes that there is a right vision for humanity. It assumes that there is a right vision for how we are to function in society. Here's the problem now. We disagree on what that is. So we have to have a framework beyond ourselves if we want to be intellectually consistent that we can refer to and say, this is that vision, whether I like it or my experience says otherwise. And here's the problem a lot of our theology is dictated primarily by our experience. Your experience matters, but it can't be at the forefront of what is true and what is real because our experiences change and there has to be some reference point to help, first of all, get us through our experiences that we can say this experience is not what God intended. It's not right. It's unjust. It's upside down. And so we have to be able to recognize anytime we use words like justice or righteousness, it means that there is an assumed objective rightness that we are looking to as a reference point. And because the implication of the gospel of Jesus is the making of all things right and the realigning of the created world with God's original intention, design, and rightness through a new humanity, 
Paul then begins to reveal how the world has gone horribly wrong and is in utter chaos, resulting in debauchery, greed, selfishness, and ultimately the two-pronged evils that we see all through the scriptures, idolatry and injustice. If you read the Old Testament, you constantly see idolatry, injustice, idolatry, injustice. And there's a dual tension with these two since the beginning of human existence. If we look around our world right now, idolatry, injustice. He continues on in verse 21 through 24, looking at the implications of evil in our world through Adam and Eve. For although they, meaning all of the people across time, for all they, or humans since the fall, knew God, they neither glorified him as God or, nor they gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here's a key piece, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. The root of sin is exchanging the glory of God for images made to look like God or aspects of our creation. It's always an exchange. When we are engaged in sin, we are exchanging the goodness of God for something else that we decide on our own that leads to a life and a world of chaos. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over, or the Greek alludes to God allowed or God allowing. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, keep this in mind too. We live in a moment that seems to assume all of our desires or our inclinations are equal and all of them are good. But I'm a living proof that's not true. I have plenty of desires and inclinations when I'm out and about in society that will conflict with God's design and God's order and my own experience in life. Not too long ago, Jordan and I were at the beach. And if you go to the beach these days, it's like you in France or something. I'm serious, you know? And I, and I have a spouse, I have a wife. I'm in a covenantal relationship with my wife. And there's women just walking by like, I mean, it's all out. And I'm like, this is insane. The desire of my heart and the inclination is to reject my spouse and go after what my heart is desiring. That's the animalistic desire inside of us but I have to have self-control and restraint to actually experience flourishing and true freedom. To indulge the flesh does not produce freedom. It actually produces slavery. And society is living proof of this. And so it says then that they begin to degrade their bodies with one another. Why does sexual impurity always get brought up when we're talking about idolatry? Here's why. All human beings are made in the image. We are his divine instrument and representation of this world. So when image bearers are worshiping other image bearers, rather than representing the one whose image we are made in, it is the highest level of idolatry because you're worshiping God's idol as though it is God himself. 
So we often like, why are we always talking about our bodies and sexual impurity? Because we're made in the image of God. Don't be over here talking about how you want everyone have to have dignity, value, and know they're made in the image of God, and then degrade our bodies. It's a conflicting philosophy. There is a design for how we are to use our bodies as representatives and as temples. And ultimately, we are sacred and sacraments that God has given to represent him in the world. So this is why it keeps getting brought up. I've also referenced before, um, there's a a New York Times bestseller for the last almost year and a half called The Body Keeps the Score by Basil van der Kolk, who's a medical doctor. Talks about the impact of how trauma is stored in the body. We are integrated human beings, body, mind, and spirit, and our bodies matter. It goes on in verse 25, and here's kind of the final point of our moment today. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever. And Paul's like, who is forever praised. He's charismatic, I think. Who is forever praised. Amen. This is the underlying reality of what idolatry is. It is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And it's worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Whether they're ideas in our moment, whether they're desires inside of us that contradict God's vision for humanity, when we act on such things and behaviors that we have that might conflict with this design, it it ends up in idolatry. Or whether it's just we really love cars, and we are like, I'm going to get as many cars as I can get. Or if it's about money, Jesus talks about money more than anything else. Or in the West, here's one of the greater idols inside of us, inside of our moment right now, is the individual self. We worship ourselves. The other piece in our society, we talked about this before, is the idol of marriage. We idolize marriage. And the church has done a terrible job of putting marriage in its sacramental place. As well as lifting up single devoted people to God. Jesus was whole and complete as he was. And he was a single celibate man. He was whole and complete. And he's representing what it was looked like for us in the new creation. We idolize marriage. And the divorce rate's 50%. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Paul himself devoted, single devotion to God. Even Paul's the one, out of all things, Paul's begging people, don't get married. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, again, some of us who are single, look at someone like myself, like Spence. First of all, you're married, so you need to shut up. But as I said before, it's also proof that my marriage has not produced ultimate flourishing. It's caused some of the greatest brokenness in my life. I've caused it in Jordan's life. She's caused it in mine. I am not whole and complete because I have a spouse. If I put all that weight and transcendent existential pressure on her, I will fail, she will fail, and be ultimately hopeless and disillusioned ultimately. Idolatry, friends, is at the core of our rebellion, manifesting in perpetual injustice towards ourselves and other humans. Idolatry always leads to injustice towards other human beings, whether it's through power Money, sex, it always leads in injustice of human beings. And keep this in mind too. Idolatry isn't just a liberal thing. Injustice isn't just a Republican thing. It is a human thing. 
There are bumper stickers on both Priuses and F-150s. I, I, I abhor bumper stickers. Abhor them. Abhor them. Flags fly in both Lindley Park and in Brown Summit. We all are, so, matter of fact, listen, if you take an intern from Fox News and CNN, their opinions about life and society are going to be vastly different. But if you look at how they live their life and their life script, how they treat other human beings, how they view money, how they view their sexuality, how they view um, the future, the eschatological vision of justice, I guarantee you it's going to be very similar. Underneath it all is the idol of freedom. Freedom. I want the freedom to use a gun or automatic weapon whenever I want. I want the freedom to do X, Y, Z. I want the freedom, my personal rights and freedoms. Or I want the freedom to express myself however I want to, no matter what anyone else has to say. These are both issues of freedom. I worship my nation as though it is the new creation. I worship myself as though I am God. There are issues in society, and they're not producing flourishing. I don't even have to preach the gospel to be able to sit down with someone and poke holes at a secular worldview. It's not producing what it promises. Now, a lot of us, we grew up in the church, and so a lot of us are kind of like, it's kind of hip and cool to kind of slide in that path, but I know a lot of us grew up in youth group, bro. Like, come on. It's not very cavalier. There are people in New York and Seattle and Portland who are experiencing the secular world and are living like these lives of debauchery and they're not happy. The most progressive city in America is Portland. You know where the highest suicide rate is in America? Portland. I'm, I'm, I'm so serious. In the South also, we worship the flag alongside of the cross. And I'm like, this is idol worship. It breaks my, I drive past homes where I see a cross that says, thank you, Jesus, and a rebel flag in the same yard. And I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That is sin and idolatry. Or I see these new modern creeds in front yards. And I'm like, first of all, these are like conflicting ideologies if you get into it. And I'm like, where do these come from? We live in a moment that is fracturing philosophically and communally. And now we think that every person on the other end of the spectrum is inherently evil. We used to could disagree and we used to could say, you know, I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to say you're inherently evil. And I've experienced in my life stones thrown from both sides of the perspective. For some of you, friends, I'm not going to be conservative enough for you at all. And for some of you, I'm not going to be progressive enough at all. And we live in a city that's divided between those two worlds. And people are miserable. We are looking to politicians to usher in the kingdom of God, and it's not working. The eastern part of the world looks at America and says, look at your newest generation. Democracy is caving in on itself. It's not working. Sorry for the rant. I apologize. We all are subject to worshiping the created over the creator and curating our own order of how things are meant to be rather than submitting to the divine created order. God has design and intention for his representatives, just as the creator of a tennis racket has a design and intention for it. A tennis racket is not meant to take pizzas out of the oven. It's meant to play tennis. 
We as humans have a design from our creator and how we're supposed to function in society. The philosopher Dallas Willard says, in the end, the idol is always intended to be the servant of the idol worshipers and their desires. When desire, this is important, when desire conflicts with reality, sooner or later, reality always wins. M. Scott Peck, psychiatrist who wrote The Road Less Traveled, says, human beings are poor examiners subject to superstition, bias, prejudice, and a profound tendency to see what they want to see rather than what is really there. Luke 8, 17, Jesus himself says, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. And I could not preach and teach on Romans and not quote St. Augustine. Which again, by the way, North African brown-skinned church father, not a white European. In fact, a lot of church fathers were brown-skinned North Africans. Athanasius, Origen, Tertullian, St. Augustine. Keep this in mind, okay? Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of the self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, thou art my glory and the lifter of mine head. We must never assume that the cultural values in high esteem within the empire that is the United States, whether progressive or conservative, are synonymous with the righteousness of God and his kingdom. Because more times than not, they are distortions of truth. And if you look around closely, as I said a second ago, with a critical eye, not an emotional one, a critical one, these values are exposing their fragility and lifelessness in our next generation. According to a 2019 study published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, between 2009 and 2017, depression rates increased more than 47% among adolescents 12 to 13, 60% among teens 14 to 17, 46% among young adults 18 to 21. A 2018 survey of teens 13 to 17 re reports that 70% of respondents see anxiety and depression as a quote-unquote major problem among their peers. Gen Z is also now the loneliest generation in American history. 41% of Gen Z report having anxiety and depression compared to 15% of boomers. And boomers get on our nerves sometimes. My parents are boomers. All y'all's parents are probably boomers. They get on our nerves. But one thing we can't say is that they're depressed and anxious, regardless of what we think about their views on life. Horizon Health News had this headline, Anxious and Depressed Millennials and Gen Z Need Help. So, as we close, why is this? Why is this in our moment? I believe it's because the pursuit of pleasure and desire has replaced the pursuit of truth. The pursuit of personal freedoms has replaced the pursuit of the common good. The pursuit of self-expression has replaced the pursuit of self-control. The philosopher Nancy Piercy says this, when a worldview exchanges the creator for something in creation, it will also exchange a high view of humans made in God's image for a lower view of humans made in the image of something in creation. Humans are not self-existent, self-sufficient, or self-defining. 
They did not create themselves. They are finite, dependent, contingent beings. As a result, they will always look outside themselves for their ultimate identity and meaning. They will define human nature by its relationship to the divine, however they define divinity. Those who do not get their identity from a transcendent creator will get it from something in creation. Young people, our generation, and younger are trying to live out a worldview that does not match their true nature, and it is tearing them apart with its pain and heartache. We have to think critically about the narratives of our day because there are false narratives and there are true narratives. And I just want us to think critically about them. Not to be emotive, but to be thoughtful, to think, to reason, to wrestle. And as we come to the table this morning, we wrap up. I want us to repent of the false narratives that we have submitted ourselves to in society. Now, some of us, because life is so fast-paced, we don't even know the lies we're submitting ourselves to. We don't even know the water we're swimming in often. All these ideas are often caught. They're not taught. But I want us to be aware as we come to the table this morning of these narratives of our society on whatever spectrum they're coming from, to think critically about the logical implication of them. And so as we do, would you just close your eyes for just a moment and sit and reflect and think about this talk. And I realize that there are probably some things mentioned that might have struck a chord inside of you. And I am totally okay with that. Because at the end of the day, I want all of us, including myself, to be changed and transformed and to be built and molded by the carpenter himself, that is Jesus. To submit ourselves to what is true, to submit ourselves to the gospel that Jesus is king, that I'm not, that this nation is not. That there is a future world, a new creation that is to come, that we are living from, living out of into the present moment. So think about these narratives that cause conflict in us. Think about the desires that we wrestle with in our inner being and how we respond to these inclinations.